Welcome to the uh, Free Rohingya Coalition podcast, uh, 21st of July, uh, 3 o'clock in UK and uh, 10 o'clock in Virginia, where um, our distinguished guest is, uh, you know, located. Um, and so her name is uh, Dr. Catherine Southwick, um, you know, well known among many atrocity prevention experts, as well as a lot of um, you know, Burmese and Rohingya um, activists, human rights campaigners. Um, she is a, a graduate of um, Yale University, both the undergraduate college and law school. She just completed her uh, PhD in law at the National Singapore uh, National University of Singapore. Um, she also works as a consultant uh, advisor. Um, at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum on a project on atrocity prevention. And I've also known um, uh, Catherine to be a very able colleague um, that has been helping Rohingya activists, particularly educating them about different uh, global governance, particularly uh, judicial mechanisms uh, such as ICC, ICJ, um, Internet, uh, Independent investigative mechanism on Burma, which is um, you know, based in Geneva. Uh, Catherine has lived um, across several continents, uh, substantially worked on the rule of law uh, projects in Southeast Asia. She's lived in the Philippines um, and obviously in Singapore and now back in um, <laughs> Virginia. And um, uh, what is unique about um, our guest today is that, uh, that she has a bicultural, bicontinental upbringing. Um, a good part of her formative years were spent in several different um, African uh, countries um, as a daughter of a senior diplomat uh, with the U.S. State Department. She has worked in Yugoslavia Tribunal um, and also worked at the State Department and uh, the Legal Department. So without further ado, um, uh, Catherine, welcome. And thanks so much for agreeing to speak to me. Um, can you explain what your, um, you know, um, freshly minted PhD thesis is about and how that relates to your civic activism as well as your intellectual or uh, professional work? Thank you, Zarni. Thank you for having me um, join this uh, join this podcast. Um, this thesis was for me a way to work out um, some of the, I guess, conceptual challenges I had been struggling with ever since college in terms of work I'd been doing in human rights um, and subsequently in law, uh, rule of law, and so on. Um, it tries to bring together um, these two big fields of rule of law promotion and working in divided societies and atrocity promotion. The title of the dissertation- You mean like atrocity uh, uh, prevention? Yes. What did I say? Sorry. You yes. said promotion. We don't want to promote atrocity. So. No, sorry. I meant rule of law promotion and atrocity prevention. Yes. Um, <laughs> and uh, so the title of the, the dissertation is um, um, Rule of Law for Ethnically Divided Societies. It's a highly theoretical thesis. It's um, 
Um, that's a strength of the NUS law department is legal theory. Um, and so in that way, it really pushed me to explore kind of the theoretical dimensions, which I think help when I bring that back into practice, really help inform how I think and how I go about um, at, uh, my work as a practitioner in these fields. Um, so basically the problem that um, I was trying to address was like, how should we define or conceptualize rule of law in a divided society and in a society where you have persecution or the marginalization of certain minorities. Um, because a lot of my background had been involved with working in human rights, humanitarian issues, and rule of law in situations where there was um, conflict uh, or ethnic, some kind of ethnic division. And, um, and what I felt was that the, the, the idea of rule of law is so vaguely uh, defined and uh, kind of opportunistically molded to fit different situations that in a way that it doesn't um, really uh, um, wrestle with how, how, you, how you make rule of law work in a divided society. Um, and so, you know, what, what I found was um, when, I, when I looked back at sort of rule of law theories and the definitions and conceptions, there's just this whole wide range of approaches. Um, and then when I looked at, well, how do we talk about rule of law in conflict or peace building kinds of discourses and literature, whether it's at the UN or in, you know, academic fields, um, rule of law is, 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 is conceptualized in this really substantive, thick idea that it's, it's supporting like all kinds of things, rights, democracy, um, equality, um, you know, sp specific procedures. <laughs> And so forth, but but and 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 while you know, as a as an as an act, activist or advocate, I'm really I'm quite I'm kind of sympathetic to that conceptualization. But I felt like it's not really explained or well justified. And sometimes you often find that in these efforts to promote law or to bring law into these situations, it actually can have like counterproductive effects depending on how the law is being promoted and how you know, how, how people, even well-intentioned people, well-intentioned institutions go about it in a way that might actually be exacerbating the, 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 the goals that they, they want to achieve, which is sort of to reduce conflict. <laughs> so I don't mean to go on too long, but, but basically what I, what the, the, the answer I came down to was that, you know, I, I, after looking at all these different ideas of rule of law, I figured that if you're going to come up with a definition of rule of law, you have to answer, uh, you have to address three parts. One is, what's the purpose of rule of law? What should the content of rule of law be? And how does rule of law relate to the context in which it's operating? Um, and what I found was that most uh, theories of rule of law tend to agree on the common purpose of rule of law, which is to preserve autonomy. Um, which is basically to create rules and, and uh, create a situation where officials and everyone abides by rules so that we have some predictability. And so therefore, when we have predictability and we know we can, we can, we can make plans, and when we can make plans, we have autonomy. We, can, we know we can go outside, we can go to a job, and we won't be you know, assaulted or robbed. <laughs> um, but then, you know, when you dig deeper, well, if we're going to have autonomy, you also, 
in, you know, in order to have autonomy, you have to preserve another goal, which is to prevent violence. So vi preventing violence is, a, is, a, is also a very a paramount kind of goal uh, of rule of law, um, of, 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 of how people understand rule of law and the purpose of law. Um, and then when you think, well, in order to prevent violence and to preserve autonomy, you've got to have some principle of equality and non-discrimination um, because um, it's, it's kind of discrimination and, and inequalities kind of create these scenarios of, of unpredictability in people's lives. <laughs> Even when, when discrimination is uh, legalized, um, you still, sh you, you, it can, the, the discrimination and the um, sort of uh, can metastasize in ways um, or lead to incidents of violence or private discrimination that's not sanctioned by law technically, but that can, it, it can nonetheless um, create a situation of unpredictability, <laughs> I mean, to say the least. Um, and so my, you know, one of the, the core um, notions that I, I sort of emphasized was that the purpose of rule of law is to prevent violence, preserve autonomy, grounded in norms of non-discrimination and equality, um, and re the restraint of abuse of power. Um, and then just to be really brief on the content part, that means therefore for me, that the content of law somehow has to reflect these basic principles. I don't go into much detail about how it should be reflected, but that's, it has to be there. And then with respect to context, um, I have uh, some ideas of rule of law and theory and philosophy doesn't care about context at all. And, and, you know, and, and there's, there's a way you can go about thinking about it, but I feel like when we're trying to talk about a concept and how it behaves in, in the world and, and, and how it acts in the world, you, you have to take into account how it actually is experienced in order to even create the theoretical idea of it. That's, that's my uh, perspective on that part of, um, of, the, of these questions. But in the, with respect to context, you need to have a context that is of course sort of conducive to um, creating and facilitating, enabling, and, and bringing about a purpose for rule of law that is consonant with um, this idea of we want to preserve people's autonomy, their freedom. I mean, freedom is much more loaded term, but, um, and prevent violence. And we do this on the basis of non-discrimination. Um, and so, and then that, of course, in that context requires that you have, I draw from sociology of law and, and particularly social movement frameworks to talk about the importance of like political, political opportunities and legal opportunities to actually, for, for people to actually go about actualizing um, this moving towards this kind, of, um, this kind of rule of law ideal. And so the idea is basically that, you know, if, if the purpose of rule of law is to preserve autonomy and prevent violence, we need to have a context and, and, and laws and, and kind of a, um, society, a societal framework through which we, we can, you know, actually actualize that purpose. Right. Uh, um, yeah. let, let, uh, let me, um, 
uh, pose you a um, perhaps um, a provocative um, a provocative um, a question here. You know, the, um, without the uh, conceptual or theoretical, um, you know, either sophistication or elegance. Um, um, Martin Luther King Jr. wrote from his Birmingham jail cell, uh, one of the letters from Birmingham, where he used um, Nazi Germany um, mm -hmm. as an example of how, you know, some of the most heinous, uh, you know, institutional crimes against a particular um, class or community. Um, you know, in his words, uh, in, in the letter, he said, you know, um, the everything Hitler um, did uh, was lawful and legal. And then like from there, um, he moved on to define <clears throat> in the most um, um, simple but not simplistic uh, way that, um, you know, uh, the laws can be classified or categorized as just laws and unjust law. And mm -hmm. and just law is the type of law that protects and promotes human persons and his or her well-being. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, so that I I think that he he is using law not simply as an abstract you know organizing principle or a functionalist making he's he's a make he wasn't making. Uh, a functionalist argument that you know law can serve uh, in the way institutions are run smoothly and in how individual participate in the running of these institutions you know traffic lights or like mm -hmm. you know the queuing um, at the bus stop or you know or what have you and and he he used it in a rather grounded and contextualized and purposive way when he say law just laws are the ones that serve the human well-being and mm -hmm. welfare and unjust laws are the complete offices of just law obviously that harm the the individual physically mentally uh, either as individuals or as collectivities uh, how, how would you um um you know um find your um intellectual position uh, within these uh, basically you know, street level, but pragmatic and absolutely essential understanding of law. And, and if it is unjust, uh, in the case of like Jim Crow, uh, this, uh, you know, the American South, where mm -hmm. the, um, you know, the blacks uh, or the African-Americans could not, uh, you know, use certain places or buy sandwich or buy coffee and tea at certain counters or get on the bus and ride with the, their fellow non-black Americans mm -hmm. oh well I mean I, I I think my my approach to rule of law tracks I mean tracks really well with what you articulated um, as you know from, from Martin Luther King I would even push it further to say I mean my my concept of rule of law is would would say that that what the Nazis had wasn't law at all <laughs> and that it's I wouldn't even dignify it to call it law, um, even an unjust law, um, because um, because it's it does not it created obviously a situation that completely undid the purpose of law, 
the purpose of law, if we get, again, if we're all, if, if we mostly all accept that the purpose of law is to preserve autonomy, then the Nuremberg laws and the policies of extermination um, and persecution uh, were completely, um, worked completely against that purpose. So how can we, if that's part of the definition of law, then this situation is not meeting the definition of, of law. Of course, my idea of rule of law is sort of a, is, is a, is a, is a normative um, concept. Um, and so, you know, you could still nonetheless say, well, the reality was they made laws, they had these laws, and so therefore they were laws and they carried them out. And I'm like, yes, that's, that's, but that's not rule of law. That's, um, that's sort of state sanctioned violence. <laughs> yeah, but the, but I mean, at the, at the same time, the, um, you know, laws are already um, the coded power relations and mm -hmm. the regulating individual behaviors. Yeah? Mm -hmm. And so if, if I mean, like, I, I, I am in sync or I completely share your normative, um, you know, uh, uh, position that laws have to be just and, and equal and non-discriminatory and also prevents uh, violence, you know, among mm -hmm. uh, groups and, and societies and, and beyond. But however, um, uh, throughout history, uh, you know, the, the, my own country of Burma as uh, and a colonial system and also United States, um, you know, of which you're a citizen, mm -hmm. um, every stage of historical movements Law has been used as, you know, a key instrument of persecution, discrimination, exclusion. You know, slavery was uh, legal. Uh, so was colonialism, and uh, you know, um, and so uh, the, the the same you know goes for totalitarian communist systems. Yeah? Mm -hmm. And then so yes, um, you know, for setting aside for a moment. Idealized um, normative version of the application of law, uh, because uh, this relates to your atrocity prevention and and also the, you know our our shared concern about um, you know the old forms of uh, atrocities. Can the law be used to prevent um, you know atrocities from happening? And if so, why have we been seeing you know atrocity crimes you know war crimes crimes against humanity uh, genocides and mm -hmm. you know uh, and other uh, types of crimes repeating themselves mm -hmm. on every single continent since mm -hmm. never again was uttered as a warning for future atrocity since the closure of Auschwitz in 1945 um, the, I mean, certainly it's, it's, it's laws, I mean, law can help to prevent atrocity, um, but our understanding of law has to go beyond what is written on paper. And, and so for law to truly kind of live and 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 have the um, sort of binding, uh, guiding behavioral impact that it, it is inherently supposed to have. We, it has to be kind of buttressed by sort of 
societal, political structures, mindsets, attitudes that support that support the law's implementation. Um, so we have, you know, in the case of atrocity prevention, um, it's 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 not a law to the a, a non-discrimination provision in a constitution is not going to mean a whole lot if the whole you know if if there's a majority um view that sort of demeans or 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 discriminates against a particular group um it's simply that society is not going to uphold its non-discrimination laws very well <laughs> right um and so it's it's um and and so even you know when we when we when we talk when we create these uh treaties and institutions um like i've said in other places on this they they can only go so far in terms of um of of actualizing the 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 sort of principles that they are trying to reflect so for instance the international criminal court is there as a as a as a mechanism to prevent deter violence and to uphold principles of non-discrimination you know through uh crimes against humanity uh and the genocide convention um i mean and the gen i mean and the genocide um um the crime of genocide as it is enshrined in in the icc statute um but it is it is not capable of you know revising how you know society in myanmar um actually upholds non-discrimination principles and protects minorities within you know myanmar <laughs> right. yeah let, let, uh, sorry to interrupt let me return to the context thing because now we're no longer talking about um you know law as is pursued or institutionalized or practiced within a domestic or national context with like you know well demarcated boundaries where mm -hmm. we now move on to when we start talking about atrocities we you know although there may be a single identified identifiable state actor a member of a, a you know international community um, via um, the united nations we're talking about the larger context in which treaties are signed and ratified by a cluster of nations say, say take for instance like more as an example you know the convention on the prevention and punishment of the crime of genocide yeah? mm -hmm. and you know that since it came into effect in 1950-51 uh, it has now about 140 150 signatory states many of you know most of whom have ratified in other words you know actually embraced the law right and and uh, one of the things i think like uh, you yourself um uh, wrote a legal memo for the malaysian government uh, um saying that um the um you know uh a lot of states who have signed made reservations you know mm -hmm. to certain articles in other words they don't want to be held accountable to the mm -hmm. conventions that they were signing and ratifying yeah they, mm -hmm. because uh, they use their entitlement 
to make reservation on certain things. For instance, like not agreeing to send uh, former heads of states or their national leaders who may have committed, uh, you know, like atrocity crimes to be adjudicated in an international court of law. Or in, 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 in the case of my own country, Myanmar or Burma, uh, although we, have, we were one of the earliest signatory states of the uh, Genocide Convention, we have not incorporated, as we were required as a state party, uh, the um, notions of atrocity crimes into the, into the body of national uh, domestic law. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. And so, so that is the context in which, um, you know, these atrocity crimes are being committed, you know, and, and, and finally, like, you know, if you look at the um, Gambia versus Myanmar case at the International Court of Justice, where only states are being, um, you know, uh, tried or adjudicated, right? mm -hmm. uh, not the individuals, mm -hmm. the, um, you know, after, let's say, almost a decade since the first two major bouts of violence against the Rohingyas happened in 2012, out of 150 people, only one country came forward, one country with no resources or very little clout, the Gum, you know, Gambia. You know. So, so that is the context. The context is broken. And the state actors who end up perpetrating these crimes you know, mm -hmm. they seem to be having a free, a free reign. I mean, a free, I mean, a field day. Like, you know, look at what, I mean, for, for, forget like the China or India mm -hmm. that roll out, uh, you know, the atrocious national laws and persecutorial policies towards either Muslims from Assam or uh, Uyghurs and mm -hmm. also organ harvesting. These are powerful giant states, India and China. You know, mm -hmm. Myanmar or Burma, it, it is an insignificant state, you know. Mm -hmm. it, um, and so how, let me just push you again. How can law be made effective within mm -hmm. the system, within the global context mm -hmm. that is, you know, uh, not respecting mm -hmm. the law that it, the laws it has adopted over the last 75 years? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I'm sorry I, to put you in a difficult no. spot. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I tried, I sort of tried to write about this in a, in another article on the, sort of the sociology of law perspective on, uh, why it's been so hard to kind of restrain genocidal policies. Um, and I mean, I think you, and you've had other people on this podcast uh, who know these systems from the inside. I mean, saying, you know, making clear that, you know, these institutions and these bodies, of course, are run by states and the states are acting some, to some degree according to their own interests, even though, I mean, at the same time, I would say, well, if they signed these treaties, they somehow determined that signing this treaty was in their interest too. Um, and and upholding this commitment, these commitments in these treaties is also in their interest, right? Um, <laughs> but um, but that the that interest gets kind of mixed in to all the other competing interests in terms of these states' relations with each other. Um, Myanmar, you may say, is not you know at super important vis-a-vis -vis other countries, but it's a uh, it's it's also it's an important place. Um, you know, where 
the greater power competition and dynamics is playing out, you know, to be really, to be honest. Um, At the same time, um, you know, I I talk a lot more, staying at the 40,000 foot level uh, from my, my thesis, I talk a lot about though, it it is, is just this, there's a, um, part of it is, is a matter of, of the public consciousness and, um, and, and sort of how much stock you, the public actually attaches to these principles and, and how convinced they are. They have to be convinced that the, that these principles, uh, mean something to them and 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 pr- contribute to a common interest so um and i try to kind of show and 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 persuade that non-discrimination principles contribute centrally to the common interest that we have in pre- preventing violence and atrocities and so if we want to prevent violence and atrocities, we have to make non-discrimination a central principle, not some sort of optional policy or moral uh, imperative that some people like more than others. But we have to be convinced that it is sort of a non-negotiable um, fundament, fund- foundation for what it is we're trying to achieve. And, um, and so then this comes again back to the context reflecting further about sometimes, I mean, about, and when it comes to the international concept, but also the domestic, but just the individuals in power and how much they share that consciousness and, and to what degree that consciousness propels them to use their imaginations and lean out a little bit to, um, to actualize these things. And so, you know, to me, I mean, you were mentioning just sort of my 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 background and growing up and so forth. This was something I I I mean this is kind of a an insight I think I internalized as a, as a diplomat's daughter um, and seeing how different diplomats um, as international actors in situations of um, political division in different countries around the world um, used their own position and discretion to you know to do more and to and so in some respects it's 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 it part of the problem part of the the puzzle it's not the whole puzzle but part of the puzzle is is sort of the consciousness that is felt and shared um in terms broadly and deeply within the public that is sort of bound by um, these laws, international treaties or domestic laws. Yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't mean to suggest that, uh, uh, you know, we are all trapped in these structures and individuals have no, um, you know, power to, to, to affect any type of like progressive or uh, changes for the better. Yeah? And right. um, I, I totally, get, um, you know, get your point that uh, the, you know, individuals with the higher level of consciousness uh, integrity uh, can still push for changes within these structures, yeah? mm-hmm. and uh, we, you know, uh, we are not uh, uh, predetermined. Or the, uh, no outcome is predetermined. That's what I'm t- trying to say. Um, but you also, you know, grew up a good part of your life um, 
you know, in, in Africa. And also you lived in, um, also worked, lived, studied in Southeast Asia. And, uh, but also you were right in the middle of uh, basically Washington, greater Washington, D.C. area. So you've seen like, you know, uh, the, um, the political activism um, mm-hmm. among the African-Americans and other uh, minorities, um, as well as like, you know, the, uh, um, the progressive American circles. And also, you know, you've also... Uh, the witnessed um, the, you know, conflicts across Southeast, I'm sorry, um, in, in Africa, and I worked on rule of law in South, Southeast Asia. What, what, what are the, um, you know, the, the insights or lessons that you developed looking at, say, you know, uh, white supremacist, you know, institutionalized racism or institutional racism in, in the United States, and then like, you know, the Africans and, you know, they the Africans in Africa and the African Americans are, you know, forgive me for for the, using this word, two different species, you know, in terms of their consciousness, right? Yeah. And like, you know, the the Africans in Africa, uh, they don't they don't necessarily feel they're black. They're, they're just like, you know, Ghanaian or Kenyans or or maybe like a smaller subnational communities, right? They don't have to feel that their skin, they don't feel that their skin is black because everyone around them is black. It's a mm. norm, right? In the mm. United States, it's different, right? Like maybe 16% African-Americans and the rest are others, you know, majority white. And then mm. like when you go to uh, Southeast Asia, I mean, we're all brown and, you know, various shades of brown and a little bit of like a fair complexion, you know, if you want to stay at the skin level. But at the same time, like, you know, the, the, the Southeast Asians also, um, extremely prejudicial against each other, you know, whether you're in uh, Thailand or Malaysia or Burma or Singapore, there's like, you know, very well-defined uh, racism, you know, one, you know, so how, what wh- what are the things that you notice growing up as, as this like, you know, global um, uh, citizen? This, I guess I should at someday maybe write a book about on this topic. Um <laughs> But I, just a couple of, of, of points in reaction to what you said. Um, one is that um, I've, you know, through growing up and um, subsequently my work uh, and study has just been really kind of fixated on this, on this notion that everywhere in the world um, groups other each other. And there is... Um, Explain and- what do you mean groups other each other. You know, well, that you there, have there are activists uh, who who don't do post-colonial studies. <laughs> Sorry, uh, that, that that there's that there's always um, there are always tensions, histories of tension and conflict among different ethnic or religious groups, um, or ethnic can also cover religious groups as a broader category, um, and so that is kind of a, a fact of the human condition, and that's why I mean, again, go, I, I set out in my dissertation to talk about rule of law you know, with that fact of the human condition actually taking, taken into account. Um, <laughs> and so, um, and so, you know, I'm, as a non, uh, you know, as a, as a not, not a black person, whether African or otherwise, um, but one thing I, I tend, I kind of observed um, when I lived in, in, in Africa was like similar, like what you said, that, that there, the context of, of racism and eth- 
ethnic division is, is just really different. And, 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 and the US context is, is unique. Every, every context is unique. You have to spend time reading and the history and, and getting to know sort of the, the social dynamics of each place to really have uh, an appreciation for it. But, you know, but there's still some, some you know, have comparative kind of in, insights you can draw. I mean, I would say that there, is, there was nonetheless from the colonial experience in East Africa vestiges of um, F, black white tension and and um, and uh, and racism <laughs> that you definitely saw and there the, the white uh, communities are definitely were privileged uh, highly privileged um, in these contexts but um, but the but the the contemporary concerns with respect to identity are much more among different groups um, and sort of the the white community is 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 sort of a, in a separate kind of category of, of concern and I mean in that might that's very different of course from South Africa which has again a very different kind of history with respect to um, the colonial experience um, and so um, so 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 I have to say, like when I when I came to the U.S. for university, um, I was I think my my biggest cultural shock actually was um, the what was sort of the situation of racial relations. It hurt. It 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 really uh, saddened me um, because I just felt that the way I had grown up. Um, this was in Af some parts of Africa. Right? In Africa, and two Francophone countries and two Anglophone countries. Um, and I had been in school with Africans. Um, How long did you live there? 13 years. In Africa, yeah? Yes, including... So, so you, you qualify as part African? Well, I mean, I in terms other... of your social consciousness, social relations, cultural exposure, you know what I mean? You, you just couldn't live in a little like an embassy bubble. You have to be out and about with uh, socializing with the, um, you know, the, the national populations. Yeah, and I think this is an important thing to draw out as when you're, it's, it's, it's a very different thing to grow up, to be a child in these contexts than it is to be a, a sort of foreign relations professional of some kind. Um, when you're a child, and I, I mean, I went to Africa when I was barely six months old, um, you have, uh, I would say, a kind of unfiltered experience. And you are not conscious of, like, your status. Uh, maybe you, you, you maybe internalize subconsciously some status issues, I mean, as you grow, and you realize you live in a nicer house. Um, but you... But your your sense of like affinity for the people uh, around you in your school or in your home, uh, because it's just common for people to be working in your home, um, is uh, is 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 very kind of just direct, and and so you you don't. Um, I feel kind of privileged, I would say, 
to have grown up that way and then not to kind of have an experience where I think some pe many people do where you sort of grow up in your monoculture I don't it's not too monocultural but and then you sort of have to learn how to be multicultural <laughs> um, and and so it's it was a it was a very unique opportunity um, so and you so, go from you go from sorry yeah you go from multicultural upbringing into try to fit into the uh, the Yale's monocultural experience. <laughs> if I can put it there. Yeah, which is also quite a div very diverse too. Uh, but it's uh, but it but it is a unique, obviously a a a, a special kind of uh, setting. Um, but but I did but I could I could sense and I mean I also because I was interested in African issues I, I took courses in the African Studies Department which at that time was merged with the African American Studies Department and so I took a an introductory uh, course that covered a lot of Af African American um, thought intellectual history and and history. Um, as part of being in that department. And, and one thing I noticed though, was that in a lecture of maybe 150 people, there were only two white people, and including me. Right. And um, what saddened me was that there wasn't just a broader access uh, among the, the broader school population to these issues. I think this has changed in the last 25 years, um, but still, um, and that there was a sense of, of kind of, um, and, and, and understandably, um, excuse me, one second. Um, my son is here, so that's That's okay. all right, yeah, I thought <laughs> yeah. But, um, uh, where was I? So, so I guess I guess what I felt was that there you could you could sense that there were that there were that there was a lot of complexity to how people interacted, um, and under under the surface, and that wasn't something I I encountered uh, or felt so much when I as I was growing up. Um, I've even I mean I've heard I've heard African um, visitors to the U.S. sort of talk about how um, you know. I get to kind of re reflect back on how um, the situ the, the 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 difficulty. I mean, the kind of also having. I mean, having. I don't. I mean, again, I don't want to speak for for other people, but but I, I have I have heard um, some African visitors sort of commenting that you know that it is it, it that it is that it is sort of a a disheartening thing to see uh, to see how it is to be a black person in the U.S. Right. Right, and 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 also, you know, like, and not the, the, uh, maybe this is a good segue into like getting into the issues of um, uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, mm -hmm. the, the, because you know, Black Lives Matter until mm -hmm. you know the the last um, month or so had been ghettoized. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, ghettoized. Uh, in other words, uh, this is an identity ish politics issue. This is a black people's issue. Yeah, the Asians and and the other white liberals that we don't get involved. You know, mm -hmm. this isn't, you know, there's something that resonated with larger uh, 
you know, global currents, if you will. Like, you know, say, for instance, that Me Too, a lot of, a lot of women around the world, uh, you know, to, to a degree, I mean, to a considerable degree, um, uh, that responded to it because it resonates with their experiences as women or girls. But in the, in the case of Black Lives Matter, until uh, the, you know, uh, 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 Mr. Floyd's uh, murder in Minneapolis, and then the chain of events that was triggered by it, and uh, more importantly, the debates and and uh, the, and complete actually a significant shift in popular consciousness, yeah? like people taking knee, it becomes uh, acceptable new norm. You cannot go back to before not taking the knee. Yeah? And so when you return to U.S. to to begin, um, you know, uh, your undergraduate studies at Yale. How were the African Americans um, relate related to the dominant culture and society, as opposed to the Africans in their own Afri on their own African continent? You know, barring say uh, apartheid South Africa. Hmm. I think it's it's complicated for me to answer that, I, you know. And 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 one thing did, I, I did they come up with the um, African studies and African American studies um, classes discussions of this sort. Yeah. You know, compare co comparing the American experience as mm -hmm. of black people that mm. began with the transatlantic um, slave trade. Mm -hmm. and institutionalization of the forced labor right and mm -hmm. then like you've got the uh, the africans and their national i mean the africans in africa didn't have a uh a, a, a easy right either they were also you know you said francophone africa you know anglophone africa the germans were there italians were there right it, yeah. you know just about every single dominant european colonial power had a slice of Africa, meaning like, you know, dominated, colonized and exploited the Africans all across Africa. Right? Mm -hmm. And and so, you know, like there, there were some like, you know, similarities in terms of having been exploited and dominated, controlled, and, and in some cases decimated. Yeah. yeah. Well, I would say, I mean, you know, my, my perception is that African-Americans who are at Yale um, at any of the schools at Yale are extraordinary um, scholars and have must have deep wells of of strength to have reached that point and I think that and 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 that they that that nonetheless and and I think this is part of the this, the the rawness uh, of our situation in the U.S. I don't know if that's truly appreciated. <laughs> and well, and the like, people what, are. What, what, why do you use the word raw? What what is raw and how is it raw? I think it's 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 you know on the one hand, um, we we want to uh, we want to sort of operate on this level where it, there's a meritocracy and so everyone who's here is sort of here by equal by equal right, right. um but i don't think what is really uh taken into account is that for 
for Afri for African Americans to that there that there is of course sort of there are bigger obstacles socially throughout life as an African American to reach kind of the same point, and so that is not properly I think um, acknowledged, and and as and, and and in addition there is a um, and this is very generalized. I mean, because also, you know, some of the people, many of the people who end up at Yale are have been are, have gone to very good private schools and have had a lot of advantages in terms of college preparation, regardless of their, you know various ethnic backgrounds. So there there are those sort of compensating things. But at the same time, um, there I think there there is always a sense of like added scrutiny uh that that uh african americans uh feel they live under in well, you, mean, um, you mean like they they have to prove themselves because uh, the fact mm -hmm. that they they get there mm -hmm. is always questioned because mm. uh, you know there's something called affirmative action right mm. and then so uh, so although like uh, many of your um you know uh, the, the tutors or professors or even classmates were there on their own merits, the uh, dominant perspective, uh, you know, perspective is that maybe a large majority of um, you know African Americans and and other minorities you know, that are not considered quote unquote mortal minority, like a uh, good and docile, hardworking, you know, Far Eastern Asians type, mm -hmm. right? That's like mortal minority, right? Mm -hmm. And and uh, so they have to prove themselves that they are there on their merit, not simply. You know, mm -hmm. uh, taking advantage or the, or take um, you know make, making use of the affirmative action that were put in place to level the playing field, so to speak, right? Right. So there's that there's that complication, and I and I think you know just to bring it back though to to the Black Lives Matter and what it, and and so forth. I think the Black Lives Matter movement is extremely important in sort of the the con the, the sort of bedrock consciousness raising. That that is that needs to happen in order for us to broaden our um, our our focus and our 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 drive to see you know these principles of non-discrimination equality actualized. Um, and I mean, I I sort of because and and so it's in some ways you know it. it, it because of the sort of un, the, the past sort of unacknowledged scope of, of racism and uh, sort of structural barriers uh, that have some kind of discriminatory impact, um, we haven't recognized and fully appreciated until I think this 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 movement has sort of helped to re, to remind us and re-emphasize and put much more in our confront us with us as a, generally as a society um, the um, importance of recognizing that the that African Americans do not have not sort of lived under the same rule of law that that the, the majority has right right and and so and so in that respect we have this sort of stunted um and schizophrenic application and implementation of rule of law 
um, that at the end of the day, and I think this is what it, to me makes me hopeful about the Black Lives Matter movement, is, is convincing people beyond the minority communities right. that the inequality in our country is damaging all of us, right. not just some of us. Right. Yeah, I mean, now, now on, on the um, you know, atrocity prevention, because, you know, I mean, you, you are so acutely aware of the issue of, um, you know, the deployment of, of uh, unmarked or like a non-uniform um, federal troops, you know, to, to attack the um, uh, peaceful protesters in, protesters in Portland, Oregon, right? So there, mm-hmm. there, so there, there are signs that maybe some of the um, uh, policies that um, the current administration is applying are becoming quite atrocious and maybe even in violation of both domestic and international law, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, because the rule of law breaks down in you know the rule of law in a just and good sense um, breaks down in societies that move towards some form of totalitarian or neo-totalitarian uh, regime authority you know like uh, Nazi Germany right the attacks on you know the uh, the very first victims of uh, the the Nazi power was not the Jewish people. They were, you know, socialists and communists. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, you, we are seeing similar attacks on protesters who have been portrayed as far right, uh, sorry, far left, uh, radical left, you know, uh, you know, they're not even liberals, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're trying to exercise their civil or political rights. So okay. how do you see the American law uh, you know, and its potential to basically stop this rise of, uh, you know, visibly autocratic, you know, authoritarian policies coming out of the White House today? Well, you know, and I, I, I kind of plug this back into my rule of law framework. And I f- have to say um, that there are worrying signs for sure and this 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 situation in portland is a is is deeply troubling and um you know there are already um i believe already chal- legal challenges to its constitutionality so that brings me to um m- plugging it into this my framework is that we have um in terms of context the U.S. context, I feel like, is it has a lot going for it in terms of restraining abuse of power um, and in terms of sort of restraining um, um, uh, the, the sort of de- degradations of rule of law in terms of like an active civil society, um, in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement, in terms of um, um, an active press. We have very strong constitutional protections. Um, We have a pretty, you could say, generally independent judiciary. 
Um, but now, well, like the, the judiciary has been, you know, like tilting towards rather conservative uh, orientations for yes. Uh, by now, like a, a a few decades now, you know, yes. always like crucial rulings are five, you know, five versus four sort of mm -hmm. uh, voting. Yeah, in favor of the conservative, some would say like you know, ultra rightist. It, it's very, it is, it is unfortunate, and it's also a worrying sign of how politicized our federal judiciary has become. Um, that still being said, I feel like it's there's still a lot of uh, opportunity within sort of these contextual factors that um, leave me hopeful. But um, we still, when we, when we really ask ourselves as, as Americans, are we fulfilling the purposes of rule of law to prevent violence, preserve autonomy based on principles of non-discrimination and equality? Um, we, uh, it's not an easy question. It's not a straightforward question to answer anymore under uh, the couple of years that we have experienced, I would say. Um, and, and there is a concern that, that there is a sense, the loss of predictability, I think, is a really critical part of how we can evaluate the state of rule of law in the United States. Um, and so that, that, that is concerning. So we are in a concerning point, but I feel that we have a number of sort of contextual factors in our favor in terms of uh, sort of remedying a, a, a deeper slide. Right. Uh, so that's... Yeah, so, so like uh, to, to sum it up, um, the um, rule of law per se, or in an office of cannot prevent atrocities. There have to be other factors or ingredients mm -hmm. um, that need to be there for law to do what it is supposed to do, which is that to promote equality, pro, pro, protect the, um, you know, the, the people, whether uh, uh, the citizens or non-citizens within yeah. a territory of a state. Yes. Um, and, um, you know, to, to keep a, um, you know, basically, um, you know, nonviolent and peaceful um, social order. And I have to say, that's right. And I, I mean, I have to say, to some degree, that sounds really um, kind of obvious. <laughs> but, but um, I sense that in my, in my, through my research, that it's, it's some, it's something that's really quite, that we say a lot, but, but we take it for granted. What does it, we, 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 we really have to dig deeper and get more concrete about what that means right. in terms of implementation, in terms of consciousness and civic engagement. And that's, um, and that's important with respect to Myanmar. Um, and that's one of my, one of my concerns is that there's so much focus on the international dimensions of justice and response to the, to the, the, the crises there that it's very important that we still, that we refocus, or not we, that people consider <laughs> refocusing on what's happening internally with the people and the, the institutions and structures there. And that's similarly here right. in every. Um, the, um, my, my final question is, um, 
you worked on the rule of law um, projects in um, you know a number of countries in Southeast Asia, and mm-hmm. um, you know if I remember our conversation uh, correctly, uh, you also sat through or participated in a rule of law um, you know seminar on Burma uh, one day or two days with um, you know no one other than Aung San Suu Kyi, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, what what is your experience of you know sitting through these uh, you know high level rule of law seminars with Suji and uh, other Burmese? What 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 me? How in other words, um, what do you think was the takeaway for someone mm-hmm. like Aung San Suu Kyi or the Burmese or how she um, you know contributed to? negatively or positively to these discussions this was at nus some years ago yeah this this was i think in 2013 in yangon and it was through a project organized by a couple of uh, australian universities on creating spaces to discuss constitutional reform i believe and um i would say that it was um you know suchi's presence was double-edged on the one hand, I think her presence and what she and how she was perceived at that time gave a great deal of kind of legitimacy and and weight and gravity to the importance of these discussions. Um, at the same time, I observed in these rooms um, a real a, a very strong deference to her and even among um, among everyone, including the international folks there. Um, well, this, these these were the days where when people thought that she could walk on water. Yeah, I you could say <laughs> maybe, but 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 my takeaway from that is that it's important that I think individuals think more about their own capacity and rooms for discretion to uh, voice change and work for change rather than looking to and deferring so much to one person or one institution. So that, that's my main takeaway from that. Right. Um, any final thoughts on the activists in Burma as well as other places who look to the law as um, you know, one of the last resorts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I or mean, seeking I, you know people who seek justice and accountability. How- yeah, I mean, I, I I just think that it's watching how the Burmese and Rohingya activists have really. I think they have done a great service, honestly, in promoting rule of law in Myanmar through their activities um, internationally and awakening sort of the consciences within in these international bodies and the, the, the entities that, that bring them to life. Um, uh, I wish and I f- hope that these efforts spread to awaken the consciences of other states and people around the world to bring to bear more resources and support to efforts to strengthen 
to stop the violence in Myanmar, but, but also to strengthen rule of law in the ways that um, kind of limit violence and promote the freedoms that all Burmese have wanted for so long. Well, on that um, wishful note, uh, <laughs> Dr. Catherine Sautic, thanks so much. And we are on a one hour mark. And so we're going to end the podcast. And thanks 